Welcome to Egress Moshe A to Z. I'm Rabbi Dov Linzer, Rosh HaYeshiva and President of Yeshivat Chovevei Torah Rabbinical School. This is the final one of our special Pesach episodes, and like the previous one, we're going to be looking at a kuva where Rav Moshe deals with some uh, with a minhag uh, that has uh, developed specifically relating to Pesach. Um, this is actually one kuva later, so this is from volume. Uh, three and it's Tshuva number 64. The one about peanuts and kitneos was 63. This is 64. And actually the date is uh, 1964 of the Tshuva. And uh, the the minog in question is the is the minog of gebrachs. Uh, gebrachs is a Yiddish word for like broken and that's uh, breaking up matzah and uh, mixing it with a liquid. So you might do that for like matzah brai. Uh, clearly matzah brai is a standard staple. And also you might just breaking up a matzah and uh, like putting it into your chicken soup. So we do all of that. Um, that's the normal practice, of course. Why not? It's matzah, it's not chametz. But there are some who have a minog to not eat gebrachs, um, not eat matzah that is, um, comes in contact with any liquid. And the reason for this minhug is because of a concern that there might be some unbaked flour um, still in maybe the holes of the matzah or somewhere on the matzah, and therefore when it comes in contact with water, it turns it into chametz. Um, now that seems like a very extreme uh, thing to be concerned about, but uh, as we know, Pesach has a lot of minhagim around, particularly relating to being super strict around things, specifically super strict around chametz. Like the cleaning we do before Pesach often goes way overboard in terms of what halacha technically requires. Uh, so this is a minhag that is uh, practiced by some. Interestingly, for many who have this minhag, um, they often uh, don't apply it on the last day of Pesach, on the eighth day of Pesach. So that's when they're able to eat all the products uh, that they were not able to eat prior. Now, Rav Moshe, let's see what he's going to deal with in terms of this minhag. The topic of the tshuva reads as follows. The Indian matzah shruya, sort of matzah that has been um, immersed in a liquid, those that have the practice not to eat it on Pesach, and would it count as a minhag if a person adopted the practice not to eat this even after Pesach? So that seems completely bizarre. Whoever heard of a practice not to eat this after Pesach? Where is this person coming from? What type of a question is this? So let's take a look at um, where this question comes from. So it's important that the date here is not just Tavshin Chavdal in 1964, but it is Rosh Chodesh Shvat. Um, the Rosh Chodesh of Shvat, which is two and a half months before Pesach. So here's what Rav Moshe says. He says, I'm not, You asked, basically, this person wrote to Rav Moshe and says, uh, Do I have to keep the minhag of Gebrachs, even though it was my father's minhag? So Rav Moshe says, I'm not exactly sure about your the context in which you're asking this question. Why? He says, so your question was, you know, you have your father's minhag is not to eat gebrachs, some type of a thing made with matzah that came in contact with water. Maybe that's your question. Your, the question you want to know is, is this minhag, if this is my minhag, is this minhag in force even after Pesach? Now, why might that be your question? 
So let's take a look. He didn't say that explicitly. He just said to Rav Moshe, uh, my father's minig is Nati Kabrachs. Do I also have to do that? So Rav Moshe says, well, I'm not sure. Are you asking whether you have to do it after Pesach? Now, what makes him ask that? So he says, Because it's two and a half months before Pesach. Normally, we don't start asking Pesach until after Purim. So because you're asking this question two and a half months before Pesach, I am, I wonder, are you asking, like, do you now have to not eat Gebrachs if you don't eat Gebrachs on Pesach? So this is, like, really fascinating that A, shows that a rabbi has to sometimes probe um, and ask and make sure he understands the context and, you know, be careful about assumptions that he might be making. Um, and uh, sometimes you're not able to probe, like in the con- in this context where it wasn't a conversation on the telephone. Maybe somebody sent him a letter. So the rabbi has to speculate on the possible different types of context and how just the fact that this question was asked so early made Rav Moshe um, wonder really what the context of this uh, question was. So let's take a look. So now he's going to say, if that's your question, whether the practice of Gebrachs does extend after Pesach, or if I did extend it, or if my father did extend it after Pesach, is it a binding minhag? So Rav Moshe says, even if you and your father practice this minhag after Pesach, this again probably wasn't what the question was, it is not binding. It is a minhag based on nothing, and a minhag based on no valid reason. You know, this is called like a minhag shtus in the halachic literature, or a minhag ta'ut. There's a difference between shtus and ta'ut. Shtus is it was foolish. You knew what you were doing, but it was a nonsense reason Ta'ut was that it was done in error. And those types of things, even if you've adopted those practices, are not really binding. So that's the first part of Rav Moshe's answer when he is going down the path that maybe your question was, does this apply after Pesach? So here's what he says. He says, If that's your question, that your, minag, that your father's minhag was to do this after Pesach, you should know that it is completely not binding, not on you, not on your father. There is nothing to be concerned about. There's no purpose this minhag is serving within a Jewish or halachic or a Torah context. What is the reason for those that don't eat kemach? Maybe there was a little flour that was not mixed with water and therefore still sitting around and now it's going to become chametz. So obviously that's only a Pesach concern. Okay, of course you can eat, pes- you know, stuff, even if you had stuff on Pesach, if it wasn't chametz on Pesach, you had flour sitting around, which was, I don't know, shmura flour, and then after, you can use that flour after Pesach to make, to make bread, so what should be the problem? So he says, right? Maybe, but it's so f- interesting seeing him, like, speculate. First he tried to speculate, Wait, what's the context of this question? Two and a half months before Pesach, is the context about eating it after Pesach? And now he's trying to speculate what could be a reason if this minhag does exist. So maybe the reason is that if I come to eat gebrachs during the rest of the year, I'll come to eat gebrachs on Pesach itself. So like a gezera on a minhag. So if Moshe says, you know, maybe that could be some reason, but that's absurd that we would have to make, you know, that, 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 that's not a legitimate reason to create a safeguard on a minhag, and that would make Gebrachs more strict than chametz, because we eat chametz during the rest of the year, and we're not afraid that we're 
going to come to eat it on Pesach. So therefore, Rav Moshe says, Gamin's a Tom Klau. Anyway, it's, an, it's, it's not a legitimate basis. We know the rabbis did not make a safeguard on, on a rabbinic law. At least that's the rule. There are a lot of exceptions. So clearly, the idea that there's a legitimate concern to make a safeguard on a minhag is, number one, uh, no nonsense, and number two, would make it more strict than chametz. And therefore, if you are talking about some minog that I've never heard of, to not eat gebrachs after Pesach, you should know that even if that's your father's minog, that's your minog, it's nonsense, and it is not binding. Um, so he says like this, um, and if there's not a legitimate reason, it does not have the binding nature of a minhag. Let's say somebody adopted a minhag. I'm not going to eat red apples. That's my minhag. Okay, and I do this, you know, and I do this for years, and my kids do it, and so on. It's not a halachic minog. It's not binding because it doesn't make any sense and serve any purpose within the Torah halachic context that we exist, that, that, we, that we live. So while it is true that a minhag can become an implicit type of a neder and a parent's minog or a minog of a, pla- a type of a vow and a parent's minog and a minog of a place can become binding on a person, that's only if it's a custom that actually, the, the reason like halacha will put its weight behind it is because it's a type of a custom that is serving some type of a religious or a halachic purpose. Um, and therefore, something like this, you know, is so far-fetched, it's considered to be not based on anything and is not binding at all. You know, maybe it's a type of a way of, of not eating things, not just arbitrarily, I don't eat red apples. It would be interesting. Let's say I, I'm a vegetarian and I don't eat meat. And the reason for that is because I feel ethically, you know, uh, how the animals are treated. I, you know, there's health concerns. Halacha cares about health concerns. Halacha cares about how the animals are treated, how it affects the planet in terms of the methane. And that's the reason I don't do it. That actually is not a chashash isur necessarily, like you might come to do a technical prohibition and you're safeguarding it, but it's a type of a way of really uh, adopting a higher um, practice, um, an elevated practice that halacha and Torah can recognize as something of religious meaning. So I'm not poskening about vegetarians who might want to now become meat eaters, but Rav Moshe says, at le- you know, there is where we can talk about minhag when it's connected to iser or when it's connected to siag uprishut. Those words te- tend to mean asceticism, but it could also mean something of a, a more ideal way of religious behavior. And that is a minhag that is binding. Okay, so that is, if you're asking about this minhag to not eat after Pesach, which it seems clear the guy wasn't, but Rav Moshe wanted to uh, explore that possibility. Now, let's say your question is, and this does seem to be the question, you know, okay, I'm asking two and a half months early. I want to get ready early, but I want to know my father has a minhag nati kabrachs, and I don't want to keep that minhag. Am I bound by the minhag of my father? So let's see what he says. You're asking about Gebrachs on Pesach. And, you know, you're asking very early, even though it's way before the 30 days before when we normally ask these questions. So then Rav Moshe says, So yes, it is It is a binding minhag, because that is based on a type of a chametz concern, um, which might seem far-fetched, but not far-fetched enough to invalidate the minhag. 
since you adopted this practice um, to, and this was going to be, you know, you wanted this to be your life practice, now you're bound by it, and um, you can't say that you've changed your mind. And now, Rav Moshe says, number one, I want to point out that there's even less of a minute to keep this now than there might have been in the past. He says, our matzahs are very thin, so everything clearly gets baked, you know, and the and this minhag really began. It began when they had very thick matzah, and if anybody's ever had like a Svarti, you know, matzah, their matzah's like a pita, it's just bread, it's just unleavened. So that's where there can be concern that maybe there are things got in the middle of the matzah that didn't fully bake, um, some flour. Nicole Makom says Rav Moshe, there's still a tiny concern, which we, enough to make this considered a legitimate and a binding minag for those who have adopted it. If that is your minhag, now you are bound by it. You've adopted it, you're bound by it. But the tshuva doesn't end there. That's just a normal psak about a minag. You know, there's a minag that's recognized as a legitimate minag. You practice it, you're bound by it. But now we're going to talk about cases that could override or could change this. So let's see what he says in the last paragraph. Okay, fine, I'm bound by it, but I have a need to get out of it. Either it's making my Pesach miserable, um, it's not good for my whole experience of the Chag, I got married, my wife eats Gebrachs, I don't want to force her to keep my Minhag, I want to be, you know, and so on, whatever the case might be. Says Rav Moshe, Now here is a fascinating point, which I don't think most people know. And Rav Moshe says, if you have now moved to a place, you are in a place in which they had the Minog of Gebrachs, and you adopted the Minog of Gebrachs, and now you move to a place where that's not the Minhag. You know, that's where you, you see, you know, the, pl- the place that you are living for the foreseeable future. So says Rav Moshe, in that case, the Minog of Makom, the custom of the place, overrides your personal Minhag and your father's Minhag. Um, now, this is really interesting. Because we know the principle that if I'm living in town A, you know, I go by its customs. And if I move to town B, I go by the new customs of town B, even if they're more lenient in some things than town A. But if I'm following in town A a practice, you know, let's say the customs there are, I don't know, more diverse. But this is the practice of my father and his father, and I've adopted it myself. We might think that that has a status of a neder, right? A personal adopted practice has a status of a neder. And it can't be overridden, um, you know, by the place I moved to. And Rav Moshe seems to say that's not true. At the end of the day, it is a type of a vow, a neder, but it's but it's qua minhag. You know, it's a vow to keep this within the context in which minhagim operate within halacha. And in that context, a minhag of the makom, the minhag of the place that you're moving to, um, it overrides your own personal minhag. Now, I assume that this is true in these types of things where different places have different minhagim, or where, and therefore this place has a specific minhag, you know, not to, to eat gebrachs, and you came from a place where some people ate gebrachs, maybe the whole town ate gebrachs. Um, if it were something else, like you really adopted your own custom and your own practice, let's use the example from before, you're going to be a vegetarian and you want, want to keep that with a kavanah and, you know, that, let's say we were to say that becomes type of a, a minhag and a neder. 
Um, and now you, um, and you were sort of out by your farm, by yourself, nobody else was around, and now you've moved to a place where people are meat eaters. So I don't think that the, pla- that the fact that you're in a place where people are meat eaters is a counter minhag that would override your minhag to be a vegetarian. <laughs> um, it's very specifically in this type of a dynamic where halacha recognizes people eat gebrachs, people don't eat gebrachs, you are first part of one community, you know, maybe a diverse community, but a subset of a community, and that was your parents' minhag, and now you're connected to a different community that has a different and opposite minhag. So there Rav Moshe says, in that case, um, it would override. Now, he's not done. He says, if you're where you grew up, then you are bound by the minhag of your parents and of your place. And again, to reiterate, minhag makom is more important than minag avotav. Minag makom overrides the minag of that you have received by tradition from your fathers or in a case a tradition passed down from mother to daughter. Whatever the case might be, that has weight, but minag makom has greater weight. So if you're still in that place where you adopted this minhag, then you are still bound by it. Now, let's say you grew up in a place that you and your family had the practice of keeping gebrachs, and you were in a place in which nobody else around you kept gebrachs. So that's interesting, because there you're adopting a minhag despite the minagamako, and that will actually create a different dynamic. So says Rav Moshe, um, First of all, you can choose at that moment, when you become bar mitzvah, you can choose to say, I'm not going to adopt my father's minag. I am primarily associated with minag makom. Again, that's weightier, part of the place you're in, rather than the traditions passed down through a person's parents. And therefore, I am not going to adopt this minag of gebrachs. You are totally entitled to say that, says Rav Moshe. But let's say, you know, you're only bar mitzvah, so you kept on with your parents minhag. So Rav Moshe says, But if you did adopt this minhag once you became a halachic adult, once you were 13, now you could say, I didn't really adopt it as a conscious choice. You know, it was just continuing the practice that I had uh, in the household I had grown up. So Rav Moshe acknowledges this. He says, Even though it was not like you coming from a blank slate and choosing a chumrah, it was continuing in the way you were raised. Nevertheless, when you became an adult, you continued to do a practice, this practice, this minhag, and you did it despite the fact that it was in opposition to the place in which you were living. So in that case, says Rav Moshe, you are still bound by the minhag, even though the minhag of the makom is different. So again, to review, first of all, Rav Moshe says that if the minhag is based on nothing, there was a minhag to not eat gebrachs during the rest of the year, that's nonsense and you're not bound by it, and I don't care how many generations that goes back. If the question is about a minhag that is based on something, gebrachs, even though it's less based on less than it was in the past, because our matzahs are thinner, then, yeah, the default is that you are obligated to follow the minhag of your parents. Certainly, if you actually yourself have adopted and practiced this, even if your practice was coming from a sense of that's the way you were raised not from a blank slate. So, yes, if all other things being equal, you follow this minhag that you received from your father, from your parents. But minhag makom is more weighty. And therefore, if you move to a place that that's not the minhag, that overrides. If you're living in a place that that's not the, the minhag, 
then you have the freedom to say you're going to choose to be like the place you're in and not like the minhag of your father. But if you adopted this minhag despite the minhag of the place that you're living in, then you cannot later allow the custom of the place you're living in to override. You have bound yourself to this in, in spite of that. Therefore, Rav Moshe says, Ach imkein, if that's the case, then you can do a hataras nidarim in that case because you still have the dynamic of the competition of minagamakam and your own minhag, but there's an element that's not allowing minagamakam to override. So in that type of a circumstance, you can do hataras nidarim, right? Raises interesting questions. Can you do, you know, what are the circumstances if this is a family minhag? Do I have the freedom to do Hataras Nadarim? And the answer is not always. But here's a case where Minagam Makom is opposite it. And even though you're still bound because you were practicing it despite Minagam Makom, there is an opening here to do Hataras Nadarim. Mikivan And that is something that because of your own Minhag, you are bound. But yes, there would be a possibility of going to a sage and having him release you from the implicit vow which binds you uh, to this Minhag. So in this Kuva, we see again, besides the fascinating point that Rav Moshe speculated on a completely different framing of the question because of when it was asked. Um, but we see a real exploration in terms of the bindingness of minhag. So in the previous one on Kitnios, we saw that minhag, you don't abstract the reasons and then apply it to new circumstances. Minhag is very specifically about what was practiced. And here we see the idea that minhagamakom is weightier, the place you're living and the people you identify with now, the community you identify with now, is weightier than a minig that a person has received from, you know, his father or mother, her father or her mother, um, and that would actually override and allow one freedom to choose whether to continue the minig of one's parents. But if one has been doing this despite the minig of the place, then that actually does not allow the minig of the place to override, but hataras nadarim is an option. Chag kasher v'sameach. Thanks for listening to Egros Moshe A to Z, now celebrating 10,000 listens. This podcast is brought to you three times a week by Yeshivat Chovevei Torah. To learn more, visit yctorah.org.